Good evening and welcome to Colorado Inside Out. I'm your guest host, Krista Kiefer, Sunday columnist for the Denver Post. Tonight we're joined by Patricia Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, Eric Sonderman, columnist with Colorado Politics and the Denver and Colorado Springs Gazettes, Ed Sealover, Vice President of Strategic Initiatives and editor of The Sum and Substance at the Colorado Chamber of Commerce, and Luigi Del Puerto, Managing Editor of Colorado Politics. Let's start off with happenings at the state legislature. Senator Danielson introduced a resolution to eliminate the statute of limitations for child sex abuse cases. How is it different than the law that was struck down by the Colorado Supreme Court? Also, Colorado House Republicans chose a new minority leader, Rose Puglusi, who has come into power after uh, Mike Lynch had stepped down. She beat out the hard rights choice. Patty, it's never a dull moment at the legislature. Or at this table, I can say, because last week when we taped this, George Brockler was about to go moderate the panel, the debate where Mike Lynch was. So I'll leave that to uh, someone who's been spending more time at the State House. But it's it's going to be a wild ride in District Four and at the legislature itself. So on Wednesday, they came. Jesse came out and said, "We are going to propose this bill again because we didn't quite get it right three years before." I mean, what we had is a constitutional challenge. The state Supreme Court threw it out because basically it has to be put into the Constitution or it's an, it doesn't fit with the law. There are a lot of cynics who I think you will hear from shortly at this table who thinks this is a trial lawyer's dodge. But I have to say, the people I have spoken to, and remember, this is not for criminal. We've already dealt with the statute of limitations on criminal charges. This is civil cases people who might not have felt they could come forward earlier. And I've talked to so many people and written about people over the years who've been in such horrible situations. They were just in no position to come forward. Maybe some want money, but I think the people I've talked to more want people to feel empowered that if something is happening to them, they can come forward and they'll be listened to. So more attention on this great and engraved injustice. That could be a good thing. Eric. Yeah, I think there's plenty of fluff going through the legislature at the moment and some stuff that is outright harmful. I do not have this in that category at all. I think uh, this is worthy legislation. Yes, it fixes um, a problem that, uh, you know, the court throughout it fixes it. It can't be un unconstitutional if you put it in the Constitution. So therefore, that's why they're doing this. If it benefits trial lawyers, yes, there's, you can always be a bit suspect. But here, uh, I vote for it, assuming they get it uh, on the ballot. I wish them luck. In terms of the new minority leader, Rose Puglisi, um, I wish her luck as well. Uh, anyone who takes office against the wishes of the likes of Dave Williams and Scott Bottoms and Ken DeGraff and some of the other really hardcore right-wingers in that caucus uh, you know, is, is good by me, anyone who drives our politics even a bit uh, toward the center. Being a minority leader when you only have like 19 out of 65 votes, it's not a position of great power, uh, but it's, you know, to corral that increasingly dysfunctional minority. And it is a voice, right? And the fact that Puglisi is business friendly should be something that's great for the, for the city's commerce, right? Um, Ed. 
Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Puglisi's ascension here is that she won in a three-way race against Matt Soper, who was another kind of pragmatic, actually kind of centrist Republican, um, and Ken DeGraff, who was very conservative. And, and DeGraff actually finished last out of the three before Puglisi beat Soper in, in a runoff. That contrasts pretty heavily with um, what's happening at the Colorado Republican Party level. When you mentioned Dave Williams, um, and you, you see his attitude, which is, take no prisoners, we're not going to compromise, we're going to right at people. Uh, Puglisi is somebody who was viewed as working across the aisle. She was uh, she co-sponsored with the House Speaker last year, this really good bill uh, giving tuition-free uh, assistance to people going into really labor-short careers. Um, and and she's someone who, while conservative, is pragmatic, is going to reach out. And, and I think what's important to know about that is her ascension in the Republican Party comes at a time when you see the Democratic Party splintering as well. And, and I think if you have someone like Puglisi in there who can say, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to stand against these things. We're going to reach across the aisle on these things. She can actually find ground with the middle portion of the Democrats there. And you could actually see things get passed. In, in a way, Puglisi could work with McCluskey to work against both the, the hard right and the hard left. Um, and, and I think it'll be interesting to see how her tenure goes and what can come from this year. You know, Colorado politics has been all over this. Luigi, what stands out to you? There's so many things that stand out. Obviously, the leadership change. And by the way, the Republicans are such a small minority in the state legislature that, Ed, you're absolutely correct. The smart thing for, for them to do would be to, front, to find a few pieces of legis legislation that they can work with the majority. Now, the majority is going to splinter. Uh, that's just a fact because we have such a huge... Democratic caucus, and we've seen, remember, the tensions not just within the intra-party, but it's also between the governor and the Democrats. It's between the Democrats and the Republicans. You know, I'm interested to see what kind of work uh, Representative Puglisi is able to accomplish this year. Remember, last year, we saw walkouts. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw all kinds of shenanigans, if you will. Um, are those going to be repeated? Now, the Republicans play a big role in whether those things will happen or not, but at the end of the day, they don't really have a lot of power in the state legislature. So they have to be smart, they gotta find their lane, and they gotta find a way to work with Democrats to get their priorities passed. Well, one of the priorities, I think, for both parties is housing. And of course, it's always in the news, and it's in the legislature. In fact, the legislature is looking at a new bill that would allow single-family homeowners in the most populous parts of Colorado to build accessory dwelling units on their properties. The bill would override local zoning rules that currently prohibit them. Will it pass? Hmm. Also, how are municipalities reacting? Meanwhile, a Denver resident has successfully appealed a zoning decision to build a micro-community site in the Overland Park neighborhood. Mayor Mike Johnston's office will have to refile the permit request. Do you anticipate more pushback on these micro-community plans, Eric? Well, there's a lot there. There is no doubt that housing is a central, if not the central issue in the state these days. It's the old supply and demand. There's not adequate supply. Demand is what it is, and so the cost skyrockets, and many people are just simply priced out of the market. There's a fundamental tension between Democrats, mainly led by Governor Polis, who have some interesting ideas here, but still bump up against the long-time, long-term Colorado tradition of local control and making these decisions much more at the local level. That is still the fundamental tension. 
Polis and the Democrats seem to be smarter this time out by instead of running this big omnibus bill that puts everything under the same uh, title, they're running a series of smaller bills. They're putting it into bite-sized nuggets. I wish them luck on the accessory dwelling, the ADU uh, piece. I think it is a worthwhile, important piece, but I'm still going to pay much attention as the session unfolds as to how they navigate the local control issue, where entities like the Municipal League and Colorado counties and others come down, how hard they push back against it, and whether the Dems have more success than they did a year ago. Ed, I've really been enjoying your publication. The readers of The Sum and Substance, what are they looking for in these bills? I think at least for the Sum and Substance and for the Colorado Chamber in general, what we're looking at is the idea of how are you going to get enough housing to accommodate the workforce right now? Um, critical workforce shortages in industries across the board uh, are a big problem for businesses expanding in this state. And one of the reasons a lot of them say is, I can't find housing anywhere close to my company in order for my employees to live in. I think what you have to look at with these bills is what is going to produce this and, and how is it trying to produce it? One of the reasons Governor Polis's Senate Bill 213 effort failed last year is because at least four municipalities, it was all stick, no carrot, pretty much. What we're seeing this year is this clever uh, attempt to do stick and carrot at the same time. In this ADU bill, yes, we're going to require that cities uh, who meet this definition, which is most cities in Colorado, um, uh, allow ADUs to be built, but we're also going to give money to those cities who take this on as a favorable policy. We're going to give money to people who want to build ADUs to rent out to people at, at below market rate prices, for example. The next bill that's coming is the really big one, Stephen Woodrow's bill to build transit-oriented communities. And that bill says, too, we're going to give money to cities to help plan out how to increase the density in their transit-oriented areas. And then by 2027, if you're not doing that, then we're going to come at you with the stick. Um, uh, you know, again, for us, the, the issue is what can we do to expand this housing stock so that workers have a chance to live near where they work and actually want to work there. Um, but the, the real needle that has to be threaded is how do you do this without angering the cities too much? And I think this carrot and stick idea has a chance, but it may still be too much stick for the cities to stomach. And what about neighborhoods and angry people who live there? I'm wondering about these, these micro communities and how well they sit with neighborhoods, as well as how will neighborhoods accept when people want to do a, you know, a bunch of different rentals and it affects the quality of life of their neighbors, Luigi. There, there's multiple layers of tension there, but just on the micro community. So this Denver resident, he went before the appeals board, the zoning appeals board, and he said, look, the city of Denver and the uh, zoning administrator uh, m made an error because they approved this uh, zoning change, but they missed a procedural matter, a, a, actually a small, you know, technical issue. It is to a certain extent a symbolic victory because the mayor's office already refiled the um, the, the permitting process. Um, I don't see the, this affecting the schedules or the deadlines of the opening of this particular micro-community, but to so that symbolic victory, um, what it gives the people, or at least this resident, and those um, who agree with him, is the opportunity to tell the public, okay, maybe the mayor's office is rushing to get these things done. Maybe there are more um, uh, engagement that, with the community that needs to be done. You know, I talked to this guy at length the other day, and he said, look, I, I don't want to derail this project necessarily, but I want the mayor to do this one right. 
and, and also he is opposed to getting this project in the middle of a community that he said is isolated from the rest of Denver, where the uh, average household income is about 41,000. And he said, you're, you're putting you know, basically a one-to-one -one ratio of a house there, as well as a micro-community pallet shelter, uh, and bringing in all kinds of problems to this community. And it's a already vulnerable community. That is his main main issue. And so I, I think the mayor will go through what he has been going through, which is, um, and I'm not sure if he's actually going to do another community engagement. They'll get this micro-community built. I, 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 see, I don't see a reason why it's going to get derailed. Doesn't necessarily solve the homelessness problem in Denver. So Patty, when it comes to housing, what stands out to you? Well, let's quickly talking about the affordable housing bills going through the legislature. Fascinating that they're dividing it up. So the carrot is being cut many ways, Ed. And one thing is right now they're not looking at including the ski towns, the mountain towns, which if you're looking at a shortage of housing and where workers can't afford to be, the mountain towns. So they better deal with those in some, at some point. But coming back to the flatland, these micro communities, that was the big thing Michael Johnston was pushing when he was pulling 1,000 people off the street for House 1000. Only one managed to open before the end of the year, but he still managed to get a thousand people off the streets and a lot of it was through buying or renting motels. We'll see if the micro communities are really going to be worth the trouble. They are temporary. Overland is a neighborhood that's had a lot of trouble. It's not just low income. They had all the radium. They were a Superfund site. So they don't want a whole lot of intrusions in that neighborhood anyway. By the time a lot of this is settled, I think the city will have come up with a new solution and avoid micro-communities almost altogether. In other legislative news, legislators have introduced a slew of privacy bills trying to keep up with technology. Also, a couple of bills addressing suicide. One would require employers to become more active in suicide prevention education. Another would make it easier to access assisted suicide medication. Ed, your thoughts? Let me hit the privacy issue, because this is one that covers so many people and businesses, but is so technical that not everyone is getting into it right now. Uh, for those who don't know, the legislature passed the Colorado Privacy Act in 2021, implemented it last summer, and that basically says that consumers are in control of their personal data, that if you do not want websites recording your personal data, selling it, you can say so, and they have to listen to you. Now they are introducing a number of new bills, very quick quickly after this implementation because things are changing so much. There is a bill uh, that has come out that would uh, stop the selling of information on biometric identifiers, say your retinal scan or your fingerprint that so many more companies are using uh, to identify you now. There's a bill that would stop the selling of neural data because there are commercial devices that are collecting your neural data at a time when scientists are finding they can actually, this uh, last summer apparently, they were actually able to reproduce a Pink Floyd song based on someone thinking it because they picked up their brainwaves. There's another one that looks at uh, protecting children's privacy. The thing about these bills that people need to know is there is a very thin line between protecting people's privacy and stopping innovation. Yes, these companies need to be able to not go and sell this data to anyone they choose, but you've got to be very careful on the number of restrictions you put on their collection of this data or else we're not going to see these devices that are now being regulated even being created. So I think this is going to be a tough thing for the legislature to get through, and it's going to take a lot of talk and deep discussion that I hope there is time in this session to get done this year. 
You know, it's wild to watch what was once in sci-fi end up being discussed in a legislature. Luigi. I mean, it's fascinating, this bill that you're talking about, which would pr protect, uh, presumably, or in theory, privacy data when it comes to neural activities, for example. The fact that there might be technology out there that can read your mind or read your brain, anticipate what you're going to do, it's fascinating and it's scary at the same time. Um, as to uh, Ed's point about the thin line between innovation and, um, and legislation, you know, legislation codifies what society has already agreed upon most of the time. Uh, it's very rare that you can see a, a forward-thinking legislation that um, uh, solves a problem that may happen in, in the future. Almost always it's, here's a problem that's happening now, we'll solve it. And I think to your point, we probably need to let this technology play out and see where it ends or how it ends. The problem, of course, is that technology is changing very, very fast. Um, I mean, we're, we're talking about AI-assisted technology, for example. Uh, the development there might, be, might have been months before. I mean, we're talking about yeah. days, weeks. At some point in the future, it's going to be ours. It will be very difficult for the legislature to keep up with these things. And it will be fascinating to see what they do with machines that can read people's minds. I know, and politics following culture. I think that's a brilliant observation. Patty. Think how great it will be here when we can come sit here, not say a word, and the <laughs> cameras will just read our minds. They're going to have to censor a lot, I think. But when you, there are a couple other issues I'm looking at with the legislature, and let's go to the assisted suicide issue. Um, the, the choice of being able to end your own life when you are a terminally ill person I've known several people who have used it or whose parents have used it. There are a few flaws in the way the bill was passed. Part of it is the length of time. They're talking about shortening it. Shortening it, some makes sense because one of the issues is some people worry that they're not going to be able to swallow by the time the deadline's there and you have to take basically this drug cocktail. You have to be able to swallow. And a lot of people who have their minds, they've made their choice, can't swallow anymore. So that's an issue. Um, the idea, though, of opening it up to have drug, the tourism, suicide tourism come, I think it's enough to let Colorado residents take advantage of this law. I don't think, and however we expand it, I don't think we need to bring more tourists here. Not for that. Tough subject. Eric. Well, let me just try to touch on a few, what a few people talked about. Uh, the, the book title that came to my mind, listening particularly to Ed and Luigi talk, is Brave New World. I mean, this is a brave new world we're in when it comes to technology. To Luigi's point, he is dead on correct. Legislation is always going to be in a reactive mode. It can never anticipate the, the, the innovation or the rate and speed of innovation. Uh, some of this stuff with neural and whatever is, you know, quite frankly, above my head and above my pay grade, but it is stuff that is at the heart of uh, what is going on in the world these days, and legislators need to be dealing with it. To Patty's point, I'm going to echo Patty here with regard to the assisted suicide law or what we call medical aid in dying. Uh, I supported that when it was on the ballot back in 2016. I actually moderated a debate pro and con in this very studio, and it's the only debate I've ever been a part of, and I've been a part of many, where I was moved enough by one side of the debate that I then later on went and wrote an op-ed on the topic and whatever. So I do support the concept of medical aid and dying. I'm fine to close some of the loopholes. Patty is correct in terms of sort of the time lags. 15 days between doctor's appointments is too long. They're narrowing it that down to seven. But I also agree with Patty. We do not need to be 
a tourist destination for medical aid and dying. A number of states also have this provision. I think Colorado can take care of Coloradans on that particular issue. Over the past year, more than 37,000 migrants have come to Denver. Mayor Mike Johnston is asking Congress and the administration for help. Meanwhile, Republicans in the Colorado State House sent a letter to the governor airing their concerns about state policy. Luigi, you pointed out in a recent article that Republicans and Democrats have different priorities and emphasize different aspects of this important debate. What exactly do they want? Well, um, I've been covering immigration for almost two decades now, and it's never been really solved. And I'm less optimistic now um, than I was when I first covering this, that something ugly concrete will come out of it. But there is a clear ideological difference between how Democrats and Republicans view this problem. I think a good example is Mayor Mike Johnston. Uh, he's dealing with um, 38,000 immigrants, a state, uh, sorry, the city. Just Denver alone has uh, spent 40 million. He is saying that we might we may spend $180 million this year just on this problem alone. I mean, that budget, $180 million, is bigger than many of our agencies, city agencies combined. He's asking for work authorization, finding a way to fast track it. He wants a what's called a coordinated entry. And what he means by that is not that we stop um, the immigrants from crossing the border illegally, for example, but he wants a coordinated plan. Uh, really what he has in mind is he, he doesn't want the governor of Texas to just send arbitrarily the immigrants to places like Denver, for example. He wants more coordination, more cooperation. And to me that affirms this ideological divide because on the one hand, uh, Democrats like Mayor Johnson wants to solve the problem once it's already in the city of Denver. Whereas Republicans are, have been saying uh, for quite some time now, let's shut down the border. Uh, and it, 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 if I may put it this way, it's a, it's a, it really is a security on the one hand. Republicans emphasize security on the border. And um, uh, the Democrats see this as a humanitarian crisis that needs to be resolved because the people are already here. Is there a middle ground, Patty? Well, I think Mike Johnston is actually working on some of that middle ground by bringing so much attention to the issue in Washington, D.C. He's working with other mayors. He's been certainly on national news, CNN Thursday morning, Fox the day before. But the focus is really on they're here, and that's what Mayor Mike Johnston has to deal with, ideally with help from the government. We can't go close the border in Texas because we are up here. But the number of migrants, especially coming out next to on Monday, the time limit on families will be lifted. So families that have been in shelters for 42 days will be going out again. And the question is, can they find housing by Monday? We're looking at 350 migrants who are already here who are in housing who will no longer be in those shelters. So the city's scrambling. They're giving money, they're giving tickets, not money. They're buying tickets for people who want to go to other cities, which makes sense if people don't like cold, have families elsewhere. They just got up here because Texas sent them up here. So Denver is working hard on this problem, and I think that's what we can do is focus on what more we can do here. Now, moderates were scrambling to come up with a compromise in Congress, but it looks like that's been derailed by political concerns. Eric, do you, do you have any hope that we might be able to resolve this? Oh, I always have some hope, but moderates in Congress uh, are a dying breed, or at least a diminishing breed, as the you know the loudmouths and the extremes on both poles get ever more influence. I'll 
pick up off of Luigi. And if people did not read his article uh, in Colorado Politics and the Gazette Papers earlier this week, they should certainly go and do so. But both parties have a piece of the answer, but both parties are also wacky in some respects. It's the topic of the column that uh, will run this weekend and early next week that I wrote. It's, I tried to dig deep, uh, deeper into it. For Republicans, yes, security is important, and you have to enforce your borders if you're going to be a sovereign nation. But over history, as a child of a couple of immigrants, I can attest, you know, more often than not, uh, immigration has benefited this country, and Republicans have often been wrong on that tune. Democrats, in their humanitarian instincts, many of which are to be praised, but they have morphed into where even border security, the, the phrase itself, becomes controversial. Even enforcing our borders becomes controversial. Uh, there's a line, you know, no person is illegal. Well, as a matter of their own internal intrinsic self-worth, that is true. But if you're in the country illegally, yes, you are an illegal person in this country, not affecting your self-worth. Uh, there was a headline in a magazine a number of years ago talking about the evolution of Democrats on this issue from the Clinton years to the current years. And it just said, from anger to apathy to amnesty. And that has become the drift of the Democrats. Both parties have moved to their polls. As you move to the polls, finding any kind of moderate solution becomes virtually impossible. Is there a solution, Ed? I, I'm not an expert on this to say if there is a solution, but uh, I, I think one thing that has to be realized is that what Johnson is doing, and some people are criticizing him, you know, saying you're, you're spending so much time on this, um, he, he has to do because he can't solve this alone. I, I think just from the business perspective, you know, th there is great appreciation that he is pushing to get these uh, immigrants able to work. I mean, that is needed, and there are people who would hire them uh, right away. But you have to remember, too, that if the city is spending $180 million on this, that is taking away from other areas, including, say, areas like the planning department, where they are critically understaffed and so slow in being able to get commercial building permits out there that people are closing down the idea of opening businesses that could hire these very immigrants. So he needs help from the federal government uh, in order to fit this in the city's budget. And now time for our favorite part, the <laughs> disgrace of the week and also an opportunity to say something nice. Patty, what's your disgrace? Well, I'm going to start out with something nice. So put this in context. Uh, it's Black History Month is just starting. As you drive up Welton to this studio, you remember so much about when Five Points was the historic heart of black Denver and Colorado and really the Rocky Mountain West. You can go to the Blair Caldwell Research Library, Black American West Museum, the Style Center, but the Rossonian, which has such a great history, the old jazz club hotel where black musicians who couldn't stay in town elsewhere could stay. We are still waiting for that to be redeveloped. It would be such a drawing card here and what's happening? Eric. I'm not sure it qualifies as a disgrace, but it's certainly sad. And that's what hap is happening as we speak with a lot of media in this country. It has been a tough week or a tough, tough couple of weeks for a lot of venerable media institutions, whether it's the layoffs at Time Magazine, whether it's the news this morning that The Messenger, which was a startup venture that is less than a year old, is closing up shop. Uh, Sports Illustrated is basically, if not gone, 
clearly going, the LA Times, I could go on. Mm -hmm. It is a time of turmoil in media and we, at a time when we need media to do its job more than ever. Ed. Mayor Michael Johnson has done something others didn't think he could do, and that is instead of just dispersing homeless <laughs> encampments when he sweeps them, actually moving those people into shelter. Therefore, it is absolutely befuddling to me that the city council would pass a law saying, now, in the coldest conditions, when these people will be suffering the most at the hands of the elements, we cannot sweep them. Why? We want to get them in from the outside to be sheltered. Johnson has proved he can shelter them. I, I think this is a veto that begs to be made. Luigi. You know, I was going to talk about what Eric talked about. I, I, am, I am from the Philippines. I, I am an immigrant to this country. I was a reporter there for many, many years before I got here. I know how critical a free and robust journalism is to democracy. And the fewer people watch what government does, that's really not good for society. And I hope we can find a way <clears throat> to somehow get more eyes on our government. And there's a lot of uh, innovation and interest, um, nonprofit journalism, traditional journalism. At the end of the day, journalism watches government and makes them accountable for their actions, for the promises and the behavior of our government officials, which they do on our behalf. And at the end of the day, it is our money that they are spending. And it, that's why it's so crucial we watch what they do. I couldn't have said it better. And I am going to take a guest host prerogative and say that my disgrace of the week goes to people who are bashing Taylor Swift. Uh, give me a break. She's this cute singer. I'm not a Swifty. I can name one song. I, I really like that song, but I can only name one song. But why in the world are these people bashing this young woman who is a successful singer, successful entrepreneur in, uh, in the arts, uh, who is having this really cute romance with a ball player? It is absolutely mind-blowing to me. With that, let's say something nice, Patty. Well, I'm going to say something nice, going back to keeping an eye on government, to six Coloradans who filed suit uh, with, uh, because Donald Trump, his actions January 6th, is he eligible to be on the Colorado presidential ballot? Krista, you are one of those six. Enjoy yourself in D.C. next week. Thanks, Patty. Eric. I'm going to stay with the media piece, but on the very positive end, well, it's not positive, it's sad, but we lost a longtime leading voice in these parts in Larry Zimmer. Uh, longtime KOA boys, uh, Broncos, and particularly CU football, who passed away within the last week or so. I remember even doing the election night coverage 20, 30 years ago on KOA that Larry would host and moderate. He was a very talented and good human being. And on the positive side, uh, the Denver Gazette, uh, as one newspaper sort of fades, sorry, Krista, uh, the Denver Gazette and uh, sister publications, you know, just added Mark Kisla as a high-profile sports columnist, and uh, it is nice to have at least one growing media enterprise in this state. I want to take a second to honor my father-in-law, Bob Jobin, who served the community for many decades as a bank attorney, as an active church member, certainly a good father. Bob passed away Sunday in 93. I'm really sorry. Luigi? Um, my son, we watch, uh, he's 12 years old, we watched Casablanca the other night, and then he turned to me and he said, is this what love looks like, Dad? Is this where um, you don't have, you don't get any reward 
for loving somebody, but what you get is a lot of sacrifice and pain and heartache. Is that what love looks like? And I told him, yes, that's what love looks like. And uh, he's 12, uh, he's gonna be 13 uh, this, uh, this May, and he's just growing up so fast. And I'm happy to share that because I think that um, in some small way, we may be r raising a good child. I love that, fathers and sons. I know we're a couple of, uh, couple of months out from Father's Day, but um, touched by what, what you've had to say. Yeah, I tell you what, it's, uh, it's that time. Uh, it's all the time we've got. I want to say thank you to all of these fabulous panelists for their insights. And also thank you for watching. Thank you for watching The Guest Host here on Colorado Inside Out on PBS Channel 12. You can check us out at pbs12.org, your YouTube channel, or on Spotify. Have yourself a fantastic night.